0: Welcome to The Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. At the end of every year, you're probably asking the same questions we are. What are the big changes coming next year? How do I stay ahead of them? And what's separating real trends from the hype? To answer these questions, we are excited to bring together some of the top minds in the industry. In this special episode, we'll pick their brain and dig into what you need to know to thrive in the year ahead. You'll hear from three incredible guests, all of whom are building and shaping the future of analytics. First, Ben Taylor, the Chief AI Evangelist at DataRobot. Then, the Global Field CTO of Databricks, Chris D'Agostino. And finally, Bruno Aziza, The head of data and analytics at Google Cloud. Nothing is off the table. So, whether you want to hear about augmented everything, dig into the debate around different cloud platforms, or learn why analytics has become more impactful than ever, this is the episode for you.
1: The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people from companies like Walmart, Hulu, Schneider Electric, Cloud Academy, and Mercado use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. You can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.
0: First, you'll hear from Ben Taylor, the chief AI evangelist at DataRobot. Ben is a veteran thought leader around AI with more than 16 years of machine learning experience. In his words, he believes that, quote, Everyone should wake up in the morning excited about what AI could do to automate their business and lift our society to new innovative heights, unquote. And in this conversation, Cindy and Ben discuss three new innovative heights. Ben talks about how executives can better leverage AI and analytics, the importance of good data storytelling, and his thoughts on preventing bias in data. Enjoy.
2: Ben Taylor, welcome to the Data Chief.
1: Thanks for having me, Cindy. I'm really excited to talk to you.
2: I am too. Now, normally when I talk to you, Ben, I feel like you're dialing in, zooming in from a very cool lodge in a snowy place. Where are you joining us from today?
1: Not as cool as a snowy lodge, but I'm in Huntsville, Alabama. So I I guess there's a lot of cool history here.
2: There is a lot of cool history there. and I. So it looks like a hotel room. How What a setup you must have. How's the tech from that hotel room?
1: Well, this will be shocking for your audience, but I'm actually calling from the past of 1983.
2: Wait, do I see a curly cord there?
1: Yes. And it's, yeah, I was explaining to my kids that these used to exist for phones and the longer, the better. (laughs) Go downstairs away from your parents and talk to your, your boyfriend or girlfriend
2: Yeah. Pull that cord from the hallway into the bedroom, shut the door and hunker down. Yes.
1: My kids were very confused. They didn't understand why a cord was needed back then.
2: Yeah. Well, I would imagine if we were in the 19, let's say 80s, that's when I was doing this or even the 70s. Who would have thought we could do Zooms like this, podcasts like this, or FaceTimes? So as this theme is about top trends and predictions, tell me, um, Ben, when you were a kid, did you predict that you would be able to do FaceTime or was that just something on the Jetsons?
1: I, I think like you said, it was just too far in the future. Do you remember the iPhone when they did FaceTime for the first time with that demo with Steve Jobs? Yeah. I just thought- this is insane. Like the, that I could have a video call. This, this is something we've seen in the movies and, and now we take it for granted granted. So you and I could easily do this over 5g with our, with our cell phones and still have great streaming quality.
2: I don't know. I'm not, I'm not taking that level of risk. (laughs) I want wired. Give me wired. All right, Ben. So as the chief evangelist uh, for AI at DataRobot, tell me a little bit about the top trends that you're seeing and give me a prediction for 2022.
1: Okay. So the, I, I love this question because when I think of the top trends, the trends for who? Because th- we have different audiences. So different people care about different things. I'm going to be more tuned in, I think, to the executive audience where some of the trends that we see are we have better storytelling when it comes to convincing the subject matter expert that a model is working or there's a problem that they need to troubleshoot. And in that, that's that been interesting for me because I've made lots of mistakes along the way where I've tried to jump into a data problem without the subject matter ex- expert present. So I've I've given up on that. You need to have this me in the room. Sorry, you were leaning into that.
2: Well, yeah. So I think this is important. One who is the audience that you most often talk to. So it's not necessarily. Let me clarify. Is it the data scientist? Is that is it the chief analytics officer, or is it executives trying to leverage the value of analytics and AI?
1: It's more the latter. I. I do have a mix of people that I talk to because sometimes I'll talk to data science managers where they are more technical. But I think my favorite audience, they, it's always the executive crowd because there's a lot of uncertainty from their perspective. A lot of the data science um, tools, they, are, they, they sound complicated to them. They're intimidating. But also any good executive will bring a level of suspicion that I, that I really like. That they should bring, and I think after I for your audience, I, I co-founded a AI company four years ago with David Gonzalez, and that really pounded in the the value proposition. If you if you don't see a path to value, then you're wasting time. And sometimes with AI, that is a that's a common miss. We sell yeah. platforms and promise the sky. Imagine what you could do, and. And I I chuckle now when I hear that line, imagine what you could do with AI, because where's the value in that statement? Why why not just direct people straight to value and and focus on a proof of value?
2: Yeah, I I think where's the value in that statement? So I'm going to push back because one of our customers, he said this publicly, Michael Costanosis, the COO of CNA Insurance, who actually came from Accenture, he once said to me, Cindy, we don't have a talent gap. We have an imagination gap. So I actually do think sometimes people, their heads are too buried in the weeds and they don't first imagine what is possible. Yes, let's get to the value realization faster, but doesn't that start with imagination?
1: I love that pushback Cindy because one of the other things that my my team and I will do is we will go and inspire with art of the possible. We want to show them AI use cases examples that they have to go home and tell their loved one to say you'll never guess what I saw today, which from a storytelling perspective that's the ultimate compliment. You have you've shown some someone something that is so surprising, so inspiring that you've earned you you've earned the storytelling to to leave the workplace. And so that, that's stuff that I have a lot of fun with. And you did remind me, uh, I, one of the talk tracks I use right now is five years ago, we spent 90% of the time building, and now we spend 90% of the time scoping. What, am, what do I wanna do? What do I wanna solve? And so you're, you're right that this is a bottleneck. My favorite question I've had during a presentation, I said, your creativity is the new bottleneck. And someone said, how do I increase my creativity? So you're right. It's it's complicated. You can you can talk about trust and delivering value, but you really do need to inspire people uh, as well at the same time.
2: So give me one of your favorite stories, Ben.
1: My b- brand has been controversial in the past, so I have done different AI examples that have gotten a lot of attention. Uh, one of them was showing that I could teach AI to play Call of Duty on the Xbox. And for people at an AI conference, compared to other talks, they're expecting. That just feels like it's way, way out there, and and for me, it's I just have fun with it. I do you know um, ABC's The Bachelor, Bachelorette?
2: Sorry, no. All my neighbors do though. <laughs> They're trying to recruit me to watch it.
1: <laughs> I scraped all the seasons and demonstrated that using deep learning, using AI, I could predict who the the winner would be, for both. The Bachelor and The Bachelorette in the amount of lift just from a face before the show has even started is shocking. And those are the talks that people remember because they think this is insane. Why why would this have any lift?
2: Or it's also the emotional connection. I can picture it. So you're bringing the storytelling. So I'm going to have to um call you up for the next season of The Bachelor and get the skinny. And and now my book club friends will think, oh Cindy, wow, now we know what you do, uh, what AI and analytics is. But I want to come back to Ben, because you you also touched on this word value. And there's a prediction or a data point from a survey from Price Waterhouse Cooper's PwC survey from over a thousand respondents that less than 75% of organizations are breaking even with their AI investments. Does this feel right to you? Do you think we'll get more value in 2022?
1: It's interesting because a lot of organizations struggle They, and they struggle for some reasons might feel more obvious. They're hiring junior talent they're, they're struggling with um, maybe the systems aren't in place where they have some archaic systems that are outdated. And sometimes that can be a huge lift to try to get them onto newer technologies. and, And that can be problematic. Sometimes the investments are too small, but I see a lot of organizations struggle where they're, they're working on the wrong problems. And so we, for, for people that have, are seasoned in the industry, we really urge people to crawl, walk, run. Get a, get a win that you can get in the next quarter or two to get some momentum. And I've seen examples where people, they start with a sprint. They start building the most ambitious thing that you can imagine, something that you and I would be impressed with if it was delivered and they don't deliver it. There's just too many, um, too many kinks in that chain that could break. So it's interesting that these, so many people struggle to deliver value for the, the fraction that are, the stuff I get the most excited about are the companies that try and the companies that find transformational value. So there are companies out there that find unbelievable value. It actually accelerates their growth where they're talking about five, 10% of their revenue is being attributed to data science wins. And, and so I, I get really excited about that. I'm curious what your response is to some of the things I've said. Why, why do you think people are failing?
2: Well, I want to come back to who's getting the lifts. Do you think it's, are they getting that um, value because they used data storytelling skills, because they focused on quick wins rather than boiling the ocean, or was there something else?
1: The most successful teams I've seen, they treat it like sales, where you can ask them, what's your data science attribution number? And I bet if you asked more, most organizations what that number was, they, they're not prepared to answer that. The most impressive organizations, they have that number. And if you're an executive, how happy are you to have that number? Where if, you're, if you have questions, I uh, not to call out the, the name, but um, a company that you're familiar with, they hired 30 data scientists. Two years later, one model was delivered and all 30 were fired. There's more examples like that. Stuff like that happens and that's because they're not, that, that, that's an example of what are you doing with 30 data scientists out of the gate? Who's leading that?
2: Yeah, I think that's where some people were hoping that data science would just solve all the problems. <laughs> or they just hear, oh, I should have a data scientist. I should do more with data science. But if they're not focusing on that, business outcome or the business value, and the data scientists don't have the domain expertise, I think this is where a huge disconnect arises. So I think we're getting better. I think there have been enough spectacular failures or no value delivered that organizations are getting better at saying, this can't just be a lab experiment. Ultimately, if we're going to fail fast and we learn from it, okay. But if we're not going to operationalize some of the ML, then we're not going to go down that path. Do you agree? Disagree?
1: I agree. You prompted a question that I had for you. I've seen organizations fail and then they hire a CDO. But I've I've brought that up before and people have disagreed with me, where I just thought, you have all these scattered silo data science efforts, they're not working. You Mm -hmm. hire a CDO, CDO comes in, someone who can actually talk to the executive team. Is that a fix that has to happen for companies? Is that a requirement? I think you talk to a lot more CDOs than I, I do.
2: It's not required, but it's recommended until at least you get to a certain level of maturity because there also is a belief that once you get to that level of maturity, the distinct role of a CDO actually morphs or becomes subsumed into other roles like chief algorithms officer, for example. But if your data is siloed, fragmented, not clean, you can't do ML on top of that. Um, If the data science team and even the analytics team lacks domain expertise um, the CDO can help bridge that gap. They become the collaborator and the connector. And then if you have everyone doing siloed duplicative efforts, I think the CDO helps address that. The good ones, not the first generation CDOs. But Ben, if I can ask you one other topic that I know we're both passionate about, is AI bias at scale and explainable AI. And if you think about how the U.S. now has a U.S. chief data scientist with Denise Ross, do you think all these things will come together and lead to more regulation? Or is it still no, let everyone innovate and behave in a responsible way?
1: We, in the HR side, so I'm going to have a bias In the HR realm, because that's where I played for so long. We do see a lot more pressure for AI auditing from the EEOC where that's top of mind. They don't want black box algorithms anywhere when it comes to making people decisions. And so people are working on best practices. And how do you, I I think in general, when it comes to AI ethics, the high rule of thumb running at the 100,000 foot view is you need to be proactive. You don't want to be reactive. And too many times in the news, we see examples where people are being reactive, where an algorithm is, it's introducing some racism or sexism or something where we have to react to it. And for most of those use cases I'm thinking of, if you look into the details, how did this happen? No one is being proactive. Anyone who's doing anything with data and algorithms, you should be thinking about this. How how could this model amplify a bias and what are the biases that that are top of mind with the data sets that we have? We have unconscious bias. Uh, it doesn't. It's not. Everything we do as humans will introduce bias.
2: Well, what's interesting is you you said who might it harm or the unintended consequences. And I know Data Robot has a great AI for good program. Um, not sure if Chandler is still leading that or not. But recently, ThoughtSpot joined forces with the Mark Cuban. Foundation, and we did AI boot camps, and the students had to answer the question, "Who might their AI harm?" Which I thought was a really good lesson or thought process from the beginning.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's great to kind of set the right foundation for people because AI is an amplifier, and I think we think it can do a lot of good, but it can also do harm if you are not paying attention to it, if you are not asking those questions. But I am an optimist. There is so much good. There's so much good that can be done, especially with healthcare. We haven't broken through the dam yet of everything that could happen in healthcare.
2: Yeah. So I like to go to some quick lightning questions, Ben. Some fun predictions. So how much snow in your favorite resort?
1: I ski back country. So I how much snow? Any snow, and I'm happy. I I just need three feet minimum and I'm happy. If I had to make a prediction, I would say. Uh, probably below average this year, 400 annual inches at Alta. Utah gets a ton of snow, so I'm not complaining.
2: Where will we first meet in person in 2022?
1: I hope it is in Dublin, Madrid,
2: wow.
1: <laughs> or South Africa in Cape Town. Where, wow. where where, where do you hope we meet?
2: Well, South Africa sounds great. All right, let, let's... Let's do it. Let's do a customer event. There you go.
1: Yeah. Wine, wine tasting tour in Cape Town on Table Mountain.
2: Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Well, Ben, it's been such a pleasure having you on the Data Chief. You have your own podcast. Tell me what's happening with that.
1: Yeah. So we've talked in the past about how fun it is to be, to talk to people on a podcast. You learn a lot from their experience and we are kicking off season two of our more intelligent tomorrow podcast and it's, we're going to have a, we're having a big launch and we've split it out into its own entity. So it has its own website with its own content in addition to the podcast, which the motivation was to allow us to play more in the gray and to be a little bit more controversial with some of the guests, but also diving into kind of the core that we want to go after. So I'm really excited.
2: That sounds very exciting. Do we get to hear who some of the early guests are, or is that top secret?
1: One of our first guests is Bob Work. Okay. So he helped write the 765-page document on the U.S. strategy for AI to stay competitive with China. He was co-chair. He wrote it with Eric Schmidt, the ex-CEO of Google, and it's fascinating. So he's one of our first guests to come out.
2: Awesome. We will be tuning into that. Ben, it's been a pleasure. Enjoy your trip to Alabama.
1: Thank you, Cindy. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
0: Up next, you'll hear from Chris D'Agostino, the Global Field CTO of Databricks. For six years, Chris was responsible for leading Capital One's Enterprise Data Transformation Initiative. Among many projects he led there, he developed solutions for data governance, management, streaming, and more. He also migrated Capital One from on-prem systems to new modern cloud data architecture. Today at Databricks, he is providing technical thought leadership and data strategy advice to the CDOs, CIOs, and other executives of their global customers. Chris joins Cindy for a discussion about Delta Lake and future-proofing your platforms through thoughtful architecture. Plus, he shares a bold prediction about the future of data warehousing.
2: Chris D'Agostino, welcome to the Data Chief.
3: Thanks, Cindy. Happy to be here.
2: Good. So, Chris, where are you joining us from today? Or if we recorded this next week, where would you be joining us from?
3: Uh, I'm in San Francisco at the moment, but yeah, I do, like you, travel quite a bit. so.
2: Yes, but last time I spoke to you, you also shared this incredible view of Miami, South Beach, I believe.
3: Well, a little bit north of South Beach, but yeah, it was Miami Beach area, and yeah, just uh, purchased a place there, and still, the building is still getting its finishing touches, and the units within it still need a little bit of work, but yeah, the I've always wanted to be near the ocean, so that's it's, I'm really grateful to be able to do that.
2: Yeah, no, it sounds beautiful. So Chris, you're a couple years into your role at Databricks. Tell us a little bit about your role there and how you landed at Databricks.
3: Yeah, so I'm the global field CTO. And what I do for the company is, in one sense, help take the load off of Ali Gazi, our CEO, our salon, one of our co-founders, who are oftentimes out presenting to customers and talking about the Databricks platform, the features of the platform, and how it helps businesses to transform how they work with data. And so they hired me on a couple of years ago uh, to, to work in this role. And so I spend my days mainly working with our top customers, talking to the executives in these top customers, helping them understand you know, a way to rethink how they process data, especially as they move from on-prem environments into the cloud, and then what the Databricks platform is and what it is not. And you know, generally speaking, what we find is a lot of organizations uh, have a strong appreciation for databricks's history and the fact that, as the creators of Apache Spark, a lot of organizations think of us as kind of a managed spark environment. And you know, as as I'm sure you already know, and hopefully the listeners will learn today, we're so much more than that. And so part of this role is really articulating what we do, uh, how it works, so that people understand, what they're buying when they use the Databricks platform and and our approach to what we consider an open platform.
2: Yeah. So I think there's a couple interesting points. There is one that you're talking to so many customers across industry from around the world. So in a way, similar to the role I have here at ThoughtSpot, but the other aspect I think is the journey of how Databricks has evolved. And I actually first Started looking at Databricks when I was at Gartner because the data platform team and the data science team kept talking about Spark, 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 separation of compute and storage. And I I just didn't get it. So I went to a Spark Summit in New York a few years ago. But I I think the big transition is really the new addition of Delta Lake. So you're serving a much broader range of use cases, if I've understood uh, the transformation correctly.
3: Yeah, so, you know, the, the company strategy has been well-defined from the beginning, and then it became about execution and how do we build out the pieces of the platform that actually help organizations work with data in a, in a better way. And so, Delta Lake, you know, all of Databricks is built atop various open source projects that we have either created on our own and, and then have shepherded the community, or, In the case of Redash, we acquired the company behind the open source project. And we're we're continuing to make other acquisitions to help the platform become simpler, easier to use. But what we discovered was as we talked to customers when we were first doing managed Spark, and we knew we had this vision of how to create this platform, but we needed to better understand the component parts of it. And what we learned was organizations are putting a ton of data in the cloud-based object stores because you know, hands down, it's the cheapest way in which you can persist this data. And if you are using open formats, then you've got the best chance of using various tools against that data. But one thing that was consistently missing was the lifecycle management of the data. So as the data lands in the data lake, what happens to the data from there in terms of partitioning, cataloging, curation, uh, schema enforcement, quality checks, all of those pieces, many organizations, uh, those activities and that engineering work was left up to those organizations to figure out for themselves. The challenge with that, of course, is it's very expensive to do it. It's hard to do it at petabyte scale. And so Delta Lake was created to solve that problem. And then what we knew sort of all along was if you can create high quality, vast volumes of data, you're going to be able to solve a bunch of data analytics problems to include machine learning. And so as a company that was really taking a distributed computing approach to data, you know, in in how Apache Spark beat out Hadoop in terms of sort of the long run with the architecture of it, then the question became, how do you actually start executing on machine learning models and training those models with vast amounts of data? And as Google published, you know, a large amount of high quality data with a less sophisticated model will outperform a really sophisticated model with poor quality data or small amounts of data. So we just kind of bet on that as the future and Delta Lake was was the underpinnings for it.
2: Yeah, so thank you for sharing that background and that journey. Let's dive into some of the trends that you're seeing working with your customers. So first off, are there certain industries that are adopting Delta Lake faster than others? So we're seeing wide adoption
3: across all the main verticals that we work with. Uh, the financial services industry is, is certainly one of the fastest growing ones within Databricks. And they are using uh, Delta, you know, in a in, in really sort of at scale because of just the volume of transaction data that comes in. We, but you know, there are other other industries as well in terms of gaming and, and you know, the console metrics that come in through multiplayer games and things like that. What we're finding with financial services in particular is, you know, many financial companies have different lines of business that want a holistic view of a customer 360. And so being able to look at all of the different transactions and financial products that a customer has and understand how the, the end customer is using those financial products uh, requires taking data sets from different source systems from around the business that oftentimes are very much siloed and combining those data sets in a way that you can actually create that 360 degree view. So I would say off the top of my head, financial services by far.
2: And now what's interesting about that, you have a history in financial services. Can you share with our listeners your previous role?
3: Sure. Yeah. So I came to Databricks in January of 2020 after having been at Capital One for five years. Where when I was originally hired, Capital One was uh, so in in 2014, Capital One was really in the beginnings of not only a uh, on-prem to cloud migration for its business applications, but then was rethinking the way in which it would leverage data. So it had always been a data-driven company. It had some very great on-prem. Uh, data platforms. The challenge, though, was they were fairly complex. They all required their own copy of the same data. And so the goal at Capital One was really, how do we become, as I I think back with my Capital One hat on, how do we become a machine learning first company, knowing that if the company is to scale and if it is to continue to uh, provide a great customer experience and also manage risk really well, from financial risk and charge-offs for credit cards and things like that, that if it's to do that, it needs to, it's not going to be able to scale linearly with the number of employees that it has. It actually needs to leverage machine learning AI to do a better job of of assessing customers and and their financial health. And so with that came the design that said, we're going to move all the data into a data lake. And from there, we're going to do all the things that I just mentioned about data lifecycle management. And then we're going to train machine learning models and Those models are gonna drive and fuel a digital assistant and things like digital financial assistant and things like that. So I spent five years there. I was initially running the streaming data layer to kind of bring the company from batch to real time, and then also the data governance components. And ultimately uh, I was asked to lead the overall engineering effort that included our data lake, our ephemeral compute uh, and our enterprise data warehouse.
2: Yeah, so you have you have a history um, both working as a customer using Databricks and now as the global CTO. Are you seeing where are customers starting? Is it that they had Databricks for the data science workloads and they're newly adding Delta Lake or are they just newly engaging with Databricks because they believe in this strategy of the lake house?
3: Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think it's it depends on where that customer is in their transition. The, the customers that started the transition, say, two years ago, um, have oftentimes taken their on-prem blueprint in terms of their architecture and have replicated that architecture in the cloud. And so the subsystems that you think of within you know, an on-prem environment, they oftentimes are saying, okay, well, we need a data lake because we're replacing Hadoop or we need Hadoop in the cloud, you know, however they want to approach solving that problem. And, oh, we've got an enterprise data warehouse that's on-prem, so we'll put one in the cloud as well. So many times, uh, organizations are thinking like, okay, I'm just going to do a bit of a one-for-one mapping of current architecture to cloud-based architecture. And that's that's a challenge, right?
2: Yeah, that's not a good idea, right?
3: <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's not. And it's funny because you sit around, you know, kind of the executive table at some large customers. And when I was at Capital One and the discussions were, let's not lock ourselves into a vendor. Let's not get, you know, in a position where we're beholden to the vendor's roadmap and all these other things. And so, but in, you know, then you get the pressure from the business and needing to actually keep the business running as you do the transformation and, you know, continuity is so critical. And so, then there are often times where people go, okay, well, what's the easy button? Cause I need to go from on-prem to the cloud. Yeah. So I'm just gonna make that transition very, very quickly. And it's gonna be like for like. Companies that are in the last year that we've been talking to where they're really thinking about this and how they transition into the cloud or how they transition their data architecture specifically we're presenting the lakehouse architecture and the light bulb is going off. They're seeing that they can actually simplify the architecture they can have fewer running systems, which adds, you know, the more systems you have, the more complexity you have, the more DevOps support you need. If you can really sort of reduce that complexity, you can actually do more with data because you're reducing the number of copies. You have fewer running systems that you need to keep up. There's no impedance mismatch between handing data off from system A to system B. Data just flows and, you know, the curation steps happen and the data becomes more consumable.
2: Yeah. So. Is the lake house the easy button? Is there an easy button (laughs) to get to the cloud or is it? No, it's going to be hard to start small, rinse and repeat.
3: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of great vendors out there that have tooling that help try to transition data and and systems into the cloud. I don't think that there's an easy button for that. I do think that there is a smart way of architecting your platforms to future-proof them So that the multi-million dollar investment that you're making today by moving from on-prem into the cloud is something that you can work productively with for years to come. As opposed to, you know, transition now and three years from now you go, oh, you know, the architecture is still a bit brittle. The systems continue to fall down. The data sets continue to be replicated and we have a a compliance risk. Like you can actually simplify that architecture and future-proof the design uh, pretty easily starting today.
2: Okay. So... A couple trends there. Let's go to some predictions and you referenced Hadoop and how really Spark kind of, well, there was a prediction at one point, or maybe it was a hope that Hadoop would kill the data warehouse and that didn't happen. Do you think the concept of the lake house or maybe the data mesh will kill the data warehouse?
3: Yeah. So, you know, let's let's go back to 2005 with Hadoop and, you know, the company that I was running that was doing work in the intelligence community, we actually worked directly with Doug Cutting. Um, and I think at that time, given the way in which compute resources and networking and I-O and solid state storage and all this other stuff, like, Hadoop was, was a great architecture at that time. And I think the challenges of the Hadoop environment from a programming model, from a performance model, and what Spark did by pulling data in memory and, and figuring out really intelligent ways of shuffling mem- uh, data around so that the algorithms could execute on the data in memory within the nodes, like it just, that just was an advancement, a turn of the crank, if you will. Mm. The thing that we see with the lake house is we're capitalizing on so many other improvements over the last, you know, five, 10 years in the cloud infrastructure with improved networking IO, parallel reads, faster CPUs, the ability to run parallel instructions within these CPUs. And so we're really sort of um, bullish on this idea that the lake house will indeed become the future architecture. We're seeing it today. We're seeing... You know, enterprise data warehouses, the vendors rebranding themselves as data platforms and kind of moving away from that moniker, the EDW moniker. The other thing is, we know that the world has moved, you know, to a not just SQL environment, right? They want to be able to do uh, machine learning and ad hoc data science work on the data sets and structuring that data to load it into an enterprise data warehouse as the primary uh, data storage layer is just not going to survive.
2: Yeah, so you and I co-hosted a roundtable, and you actually set a timeline. Are you able to share that officially now that we're recording this? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to share it. Uh, you know,
3: this is not some official Databricks position. This is, you know, as I talk to other leaders within the company, we believe within 10 years that the traditional data warehouse won't exist any longer. That doesn't mean that SQL workloads will disappear. We think SQL workloads will still be there. They'll just be done in a different manner and with Databricks SQL. And you know, as, as I'm sure you know, there's been a lot of press lately about Databricks SQL and TPCDS. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh yeah so, yeah. so we can chat about that. Would be happy to. the The idea of bringing in data, curating it, keeping as few copies of that data as possible, but performing those SQL workloads against that data lake with the lakehouse architecture. We feel very confident that that's going to be the future.
2: Okay. Thank you. I actually have to share something, and people on audio won't be able to see this, but my indoctrination into uh, the data warehouse world like, there's still this book from Bill Idman. Yeah. I think it was 1993, I was given that book. And then look what arrived um, in the last few weeks. Yeah. Uh, also, by Bill Inman, building the data lake house. So yeah. it's interesting how state of the art does keep changing. I do have to ask you about these TPC benchmarks because yeah. Snowflake and Databricks, both our valued partners, are duking it out on social media about whose benchmarks were better. What's going on with this?
3: Yeah. So let me just say, I think, you know, I'm going to sort of Bookend my my commentary on this with with an observation. Databricks is now being viewed in the enterprise data warehouse space in terms of traditional data warehouse workloads. And if you think about that, yeah. that's absolutely fantastic for us and for our customers. You know, roll the clock back two years, we didn't have this data capability, science, right? Yeah, we were data exactly. science, and people viewed us that way, and people thought hey, we need Databricks and we need a data warehouse, you know, solution and simultaneous and how do they coexist, right? Right. We're now in that discussion. And so I would encourage people to actually look at the blogs that we've posted. And I think the blogs actually reflect our ethos. We believe in open standards. We believe in, you know, transparency and how things are done. And yes, you could say, and there are people on social media that are talking about, well, these benchmarks are a relic or the thing of the past. I'm not so sure I buy that. I think when, you know, what I like to think about is Tesla. Remember when Tesla first hit the scene and they they came in with an electric car whose performance rivaled cars that were like considered supercars. And they changed the public's opinion about how an electric vehicle could operate. Because prior to that, They were, you know, the designs weren't attractive. They were not performant cars. Tesla came in and they recast that entire model. And now, just like I think in 10 years, the majority of cars are going to be electric-based cars and they're going to be higher performing ones. And I think, you know, that innovation is what we're seeing with the lake house. I think the architecture of the future is like the EV of the future. So think of us as maybe Tesla in this scenario.
2: Yeah, well... um I'm looking at a, an a Ford electric car, the Ford Mustang. So, yes. but I, but <laughs> to focus on this, this is where I, I wish sometimes I could still be that independent analyst, and I would actually run a side by side bake off, similar questions, similar data sets to dig under the covers to what's really going on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and that's what you're we're into it.
3: Yeah, that's yeah, I'm totally into it. That's what we're hoping. We've done two things. Number one, we removed what's referred to as the DeWitt clause, which unfortunately is, you know, DeWitt was someone who actually valued what you just described. But that clause was in there in a lot of agreements that said you can't benchmark our platform. We removed it. Right. We're, we're oh, proud. I, that I didn't realize. Yeah, so OK, we, OK. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Snowflake yeah. actually just followed suit. So we applaud them for that. They've removed it as well. What we're encouraging uh, people to what we're encouraging Snowflake to do is run their benchmark tests using the fully audited approach. And you know, one of the things that the the viewers, the listeners here, have to keep in mind is when you when you do the TPC DS benchmarking, there's a process of loading the you know generating the data set, and there are scripts that need to be run to do that. Um, and we followed the the scripts that TPC uh, offered up, and then they do you know, loading the data, they do power tests and performance. Price per performance is really important, right? If I drive a car, and I have the same performance as a car that's three times the price, well, you might, you know, there's a big difference. So that's why price per performance actually matters a lot in this space. Absolutely. And Yeah. yeah, you know, if you're, you know, hundreds of seconds different, you know, in these benchmarks, that's probably not really that meaningful in the end for, for customers. But the point is, and I'll sort of close the commentary here with that final bookend. Databricks is now being considered an enterprise data warehouse relative to Snowflake, which which, is a change, which is a huge, huge change for us. And it's a huge change for our customers. And I think it's gotten the attention of, of Snowflake, frankly, and their founders and their executives. And, you know, we're happy to, to be able to perform benchmarks at the rate that, compares with them. It's great.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So to bring it back to the trends though, and I'm going to have to check if, if my former colleague, Adam Ronthal at Gartner actually published this yet, but he was saying one of his predictions or trends that he's seeing is a closer partnership between the CFO and the CDO because it is about the price point and running things in the cloud can lead to some surprises if you don't kind of put guardrails there. So Chris, I always like to end with some fun predictions and I know that you are a soccer fan. So give me a prediction for the World Cup in 2022.
3: Well, as you know, I'm of Italian descent, and Italy <laughs> just won. Yes, yes. <laughs> Italy just won the Euro. I was actually in Milan when uh, when they played London, and uh, or they played in London and, and beat England. Uh, sorry for my English colleagues. Uh, so, but I was very happy, and uh, so yes, I think uh, the Italians will will pull it out in in the World Cup as well, and it'll be a repeat of 2006. So that's my prediction.
2: My husband's English, so it was a very sad weekend in our house, but they were just happy they made it that far. So that's great. So uh, can we predict, will you actually be watching this from Qatar or from where else?
3: I will do my level best to make that happen. Uh, If you know anyone that has tickets or can get (laughs) tickets, you let me know. I'll, I'll, okay. s- I'll sell an organ in order to, to afford them.
2: Oh, gosh, don't even go there. Well, you know, our other guest on this episode, Ben Taylor from da- Data Robot, he's also a skier, snowboarder, and I think you're also a snowboarder. So what are your predictions for where you're snowboarding? Or maybe um, as I'm in lovely New Jersey, outside New York, white Christmas, not white Christmas.
3: You know, uh, for the last few years, I would say last five years or so if if you do enjoy snow sports and snowboarding what you've what you've realized is you kind of have to do just in time uh booking of a trip where you look to see which resorts are getting snow and which ones have built up enough of a base, and then you you wait and you pay a premium to fly there and stay there uh, because you book it last minute, but it beats uh, you know, planning a trip months in advance, realizing there's no snow, and getting there, and really not enjoying the the actual activity. So, um, I, I always look at you know Colorado and you know British Columbia as places that, generally speaking, will will have some area of those uh, two will have uh, some good snow. So that's what I'm hoping for this year.
2: Both beautiful places, Chris. Thank you for being on the data Chief.
3: Thanks, and good to see you again as always.
2: Likewise.
0: Last but certainly not least is Bruno Aziza, the head of data and analytics at Google Cloud. He specializes in everything data, from data analytics to business intelligence, data science, and artificial intelligence. His impressive resume includes stops at Business Objects, Alpine Data Labs, Oracle, Microsoft, and so many others. Bruno discusses the acceleration of companies to the cloud including the multi-cloud opportunity. He also shares his thoughts on data mesh and data governance and the need for competition across the industry.
2: So Bruno Aziza, uh, a legend in the industry in his own right. Welcome to the Data Chief.
4: Well, thank you for having me, Cindy.
2: So Bruno, I say I met you mid-career. You have worked in so many roles across the industry. Now at Google, but but let's go a little bit backwards. You want to rattle rattle them off?
4: Uh, sure. So I've worked in small, large, medium companies in the data space. I've only been in the data space. So you might know of companies like AtScale, Alpine Labs, or Sysense. You know, I help uh, launch and scale these organizations. I also worked at Business Objects. I think that's where we met originally uh, when you were doing the BI scorecard. And that's uh, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, when business objects was just, you know, taking off, we bought crystal reports at the time Acta, and so forth. So that was a great ride. And then I worked at large organizations like Microsoft, where I worked there for seven years, helped them scale the data business to a billion dollar business, uh, Oracle, where we turned around the business, uh, uh analytics business. And then now I've been at Google for uh, almost two years, uh, working on data, uh, and, uh, data analytics.
2: Okay, so quite quite the journey. So I yeah. often say this is the data and analytics fishbowl. If you really care about this space, you stay in it, but maybe change your roles throughout.
4: Yeah, you know, I, and I've always worked uh, started with customers, and so for me, what's been really interesting is the evolution of of the industry. Uh, it's true that we're meeting the same people on the vendor side. Certainly, it's great to be part of this community, and that's part of why, frankly. I've stayed in it, you know, I've written two books on the topic and I've just, I've enjoyed watching the customers mature through it. And so I really, frankly, I don't think I could do anything else. I have had the opportunity to go out and work on collaboration and other things. We're turning a corner here and I think it's going to be a defining decade. I'm happy we're talking about the predictions because I think if you're listening to the show as a chief data officer, you probably, in my opinion, have the most important role in your organization.
2: Oh, I agree. It's it's kind of about time that everyone else realizes the full value that yeah. you and I have known for decades now. So, it is so tell us why you see this as a defining decade. Is it really just about data and analytics for business power or can you be more specific?
4: Yeah, I could be very specific and I agree with you. You know, when uh, I started nobody cared about data, you know, it was liability. And so <laughs>
2: Well well wait a minute, wait a minute. Nobody cared? Nobody cared. Somebody, well, some cared. people did. Yeah. You cared. <laughs> yes. Um,
4: but it was it was hard to I think um Uh, for people to organize around this opportunity of now data is a defining asset for my organization. And it really becomes a differentiation uh, for what I do, just like my products. And so I think that's what we're starting to look at. I mean, there's two trends that immediately, I think are going to change the next decade, next year. One is the move to the cloud, right? I mean, if you look at Gartner's prediction, 75% of databases um, by 2022, I think are going to be in the cloud. So there's a gigantic move uh, to the cloud and this transformation of not just moving what you're doing on premise to the cloud, but also using it as an opportunity to transform your processes, accelerate your path to production. So I think it's an important trend coupled with that is the trend around multi-cloud. You know, We asked our customers, you know, how do you think about the cloud opportunity? And often they're looking at multiple clouds. So I think if you're listening to us today, you're thinking, what is my cloud strategy? You should be thinking about what is my cloud strategy? and how you mature through it. You know, what we see organizations uh, mature through is essentially three phases when they're modernizing and transforming. And I can take you through them briefly here, happy to extend on them. But the the, the first one is this idea of the data ocean. And the terminology I'm going to use, by the way, is not a vendor terminology, it's customer terminology. The data ocean was invented by Vodafone a few years ago. And the idea there was, how do I move to the cloud to make it more cost-effective for me to scale humanly, to scale technically, to also remove the headache of managing, you know, scalable infrastructure on-prem like Hadoop, but that have a huge administrative uh, headache that they're creating for my team. So how do I move to a place where I can have full view of my data state? The Data ocean is interesting in comparison to the data lake because the data lake is landlocked. The data ocean, presupposes that you're multi-cloud, you're transactional and analytical, and you're really trying to have a left to right view of your estate. Catalog technology is important there. So that's the first stage.
2: I wanna clarify something though. Sure. So if you think how much data is on-premises, and yet organizations are more quickly trying to get to the cloud. I think everyone agrees with that. The pace can be debatable. So you yeah. quoted Gartner by 2022. I don't know if they accelerated that. The last time I saw the prediction, I thought they were projecting that further out. Has that changed? Yeah, I think- <laughs> You're I more up to date yeah. on Gartner now than I am. Uh,
4: I, I could send you the the link that, that, uh, that I found the stat on, but I do think they have over time- Uh, accelerated that because they're just seeing how fast and primarily uh, over the last year and a half uh, you've seen really transformation that we didn't see in the last 10 years, right? Of course, yeah. So I think they might have updated the numbers, but I think even if you look at the original prediction, I think 75% of database being in the cloud in any time period, if it's not in the 12 months or the next 24 months, that's pretty incredible thinking that we're sitting on 30 years of, you know, technology here that have been built on premise. So yes. uh, for that to just transition that quickly yes. uh, is pretty yes. impressive.
2: Yeah, because back in 2016, it, it was like less than 10% had right. their uh, data volumes were in the cloud. So, okay. So go, yeah. so then go ahead. So Data Ocean, what's what's the next component?
4: I'll give you the second one. Yeah. Because I, I think you'll like the, this model and hopefully your audience will, will find them useful because what we found is it's great to talk about digital transformation and cloud transformation, but you know what... People need is what does the path look like? I'm not going to press a button and be transformed tomorrow. So this idea of the data ocean is is really the foundation of of your data driven organization. Is you got to start with that being able to catalog broad view beyond your data lakes of the data assets you could take advantage of. And so that's why we we talk about multi cloud, transactional, analytical. The second one is a term you've heard a lot of, and I know you've done some coverage around this is data mesh. So. It's a great word because it it defines not just an architectural choice from a technology standpoint, but also leads to the organizational uh, footprint that you need to organize around. And the data mesh issue, the way we're seeing customers trying to solve it, is about federation. How do I now have centralized governance of my data? It doesn't mean that the data is centrally stored, but I have a central vision of governance. And now I can create these federated hubs federated neighborhoods. Some of the customers use this terminology where they, they want people to be able to innovate in their business units in their countries while still adhering uh, to the governance uh, and the policies uh, of their organization. Also, what we found is once you govern and have visibility uh, centrally, your machine learning models are better because you have access and you see more data. And we know the machine learning is better the more data you have. And so that's that second phase of data mesh Here, technology like data fabric is important. Uh, Analytics exchanges are important. Because here, again, you're just trying to empower uh, kind of the business by decentralizing analytics while centralizing the science of data.
2: Yeah, so let's unpack a little bit of that, Bruno. And some of these terms people will use interchangeably. Some will use them precisely. We had uh, Jamak, the author of uh, the book, The Data Mesh, on a Data Chief Live. And it was fascinating to me to see how angry some people got and felt like this will destroy any kind of concept of master data, single view oh. of the customer. I know. And I was like, is this just people are afraid, or were we have to go through that f- thrashing? of new ideas, new ways of working to get to a better side? What, what do you think?
4: Well, what I think, you know, you and I have known each other for a while, and you know I'm French, right? And in, French, in France, we have a lot of disagreements. And we have this saying where we say, if the two of us disagree, we'll get to a better result. I think the actual saying is, if two of us continue to disagree, at least one of us will be right. <laughs> we do have to work through this. Uh, as an industry. And I, I don't see, you know, I like, you know, the idea that people could get angry because it means that they care, right? Yes. What we got to get away from, and it's going to be sound strange coming from a vendor is we got to watch out for the vendor speak, right? There's going to be vendors that are going to say, oh, you know, I have this data mesh technology and you should buy it. And the, the reality is you don't buy a data mesh, right? I mean, if, if you think about it as It's both a technology approach and an organizational approach. So I always tell my customers like, you know, there's technologies like the data fabric that is true technology. That's going to enable your data, your data mesh. But those two things are different. The data mesh is a concept, which is why Zemak wrote about that. Now you have data fabric technology, you have data catalog technology, you have exchanges technologies that enable the data mesh, but you build the data mesh. There's no, Skew that, that you can buy—that's a dinner mesh in the box. <laughs> it,
2: it's a very good point, Bruno, and I do think um, I do think people wish they could buy it. Yeah, because that would be easier. I also do want to clarify that the data fabric as one particular technology originating right. out of NetApp has evolved beyond that. So, so Gartner will use the term the data fabric, and they don't mean one particular vendor. Or do you agree or disagree?
4: I think the the meta point here, and it's the same thing for you take a topic like artificial intelligence, right? I wish I could tell you, here's the one skew that is AI in the box. And and the reality is that you have to take into account, it's going to be multiple components of technology. Choice is important for your community because not everybody's a data scientist. So you've got many different ways of doing machine learning and artificial intelligence. And you have to sit back and, and think about, Can you realistically absorb the innovation these vendors are throwing at you? And is their model uh, appropriate to your organizational footprint and your talent? And so that's why I tend to say, you know, when people, when we use term like data mesh, I want to be really careful that I'm not selling you a product here. I'm really referring to an organizational uh, footprint where you centralize data, you decentralize analytics. And so now how are you going to do that? There are many products that can enable you to do that.
2: Right. So it's more about um, what technology will enable you to work a certain way in new ways. Um, We also had, so there are a lot of, let's say, buzzwords and trying to cut through it and newer concepts. So we have concepts, Data Ocean, you just introduced us to, Data Fabric, Data Mesh. The Lake House is a concept that our other guest on this episode, Chris D'Agostino from Databricks, that they are um, advocating for. Interestingly, Starburst data will push their their kind of branding as a data mesh enabler. And Chris had a prediction that the data warehouse, as we know it, will be gone in ten years or less. Yeah. Um, do you think this is conservative, not aggressive enough? What do you think?
4: Yeah, I think you know I, I'm going to let him uh, stay with that prediction. I'm not sure that you can make a statement like that with that much uh, confidence. That's that's a really hard one too, right? I mean, I don't know if you remember when Gartner did their predictions, they would go back and say, what did we hit and what did we miss? And yes. there's always a, a good amount of, of miss. And that's, that's probably kind of, of the point. So I'm happy he's making the bet. I don't think I can align to it. And, and I'll tell you why, because if you think about this model, the data ocean, the data mesh, there's a third stage that really matters here, and it's the, the data factory. You know, what organizations are trying to do, nobody wakes up in the morning, I think, and say they have a data warehousing problem or they have a data lake or a data lake house problem. They wake up and they're worried about innovation. They're worried about how do I create data products? And in this third phase of the data factory, what we're seeing is that level of maturity where organizations now have moved past. You know, I have infrastructure, I have my foundational data data ocean. I have now my data mesh and I know kind of how this relationship works within my business. And now I can truly build data products. I can build anomaly detection, detection at, at scale. I can build propensity to buy. I can build, you know, any, any type I could build recommendation systems. Here you start running into the issues of having universal semantic layers, having frameworks that are composable where now your people can build applications in repeatable manner. So this concept of factory repeatability is really important for organizations. So while I agree you know, from the Databricks standpoint, trying to differentiate between a data lake and a data warehouse, I think the best way that we've seen customers really succeed is what is your end game? What are you trying to do ultimately? And you're trying to build data products and how do we get you there? You're probably gonna need a construct that looks like a data lake. You're probably gonna need a construct that looks like a data warehouse. Does this have to be in the same product? i let you make the decision, right? I'm not going to force you down to something that maybe is not natural to the business goal you're trying to accomplish. And so, uh, you know, that's kind of what I've seen customers do. Now, what's going to happen in the next 10 years? I can't really tell you that.
2: Yeah, probably the only certain thing is you and I will still still be in the data and analytics space. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. <laughs> um, Well, and, and you say the end game is really or the ultimate goal is creating these data products. I would take it a step further and say that they're actually just trying to achieve a particular business outcome and that the data products enable that or not. so Absolutely. have have we been focusing too much on the how and the technology and not enough on the why?
4: I mean, if you look at you know some of the issues that chief data officers are dealing with, you know the, one of the reasons for why their tenure is is less than a thousand days is because they're, overwhelmed by the amount of technology and vendor speak they're being hit with. And by starting with technology, you forget, you know the reason for why we're here, we're, we're trying to use data as the fuel for innovation. We're not trying to be the best uh, deployment uh, group for a particular technology construct, right? So I think that's I think the issue I take with this approach is trying to kind of go down one path. I don't want to sell you a data warehouse. I don't want to sell you a data, a data lake. I want to understand what's your business outcome because that's what's going to keep you employed and that's what's going to get you the next job. And so let's focus on anomaly detection, propensity to buy recommendation systems. What is the stack that enables your team, your organization to make that happen? And it's most likely not going to look just exactly like the next company, the last company I talked to. And so I'd rather provide choice and let the customer decide. Uh, along this maturity of the ocean, the mesh, and the factory, because uh, I think that's just the fastest way to get to production and real results.
2: Yeah. So there's a couple keywords key words that you've used here, Bruno, providing customers choice, composability, and I'm going to use the word ecosystem, because yeah. if you think about um, the sponsor of this podcast, ThoughtSpot, you are Google. We also had Databricks in here. There is a field of coopetition, yeah. <laughs> but also the ecosystem where, where one plus one um, is way more than, than three even. If you think about how you might have Databricks running on the Google Cloud platform, you might have Looker in there Or you might have ThoughtSpot running against Google BigQuery or Databricks, and you might have DataRobot or Google ML, and a customer can compose this whole data product from really best of breed across the ecosystem. But does this make the role of a CDO easier? What are your thoughts on this?
4: It doesn't make the role of a CDO uh, easier, I think if you look at the landscape right the the latest 2021 landscape that matt turk published you know you can't even tell the logos anymore even the category so i think in general it, you know the the running theme of my conversations with the chief data officers is what's your number one problem complexity i can't deliver a simple interface to my business users because i in, in the background i have so many complex bits and pieces i got to assemble and so You know, I think that's been our approach at at Google is is this idea of like, who do you think has solved this problem before? And and you you relate to it at ThoughtSpot as well, where when you go to google.com, it's a very simple interface, a search bar where you don't have to get any training and you're getting a simple interface, but you're never getting rid of the high level sophistication personalization that's required for you to do your job. So I think as a vendor, that's our job is how do we help the CDO deliver simplicity for, for their users. While in the background, we still conserve this ability to handle the sophistication because the questions they're asking are not simple questions. The interface needs to be simple, but the, the complexity behind it needs to be supported. So that's where integration, openness. So in our case, we are the only hyperscaler that probably has the most advanced multi-cloud strategy. So that's important because we wanna meet the customers where they are today and where they're gonna to be tomorrow. And we know they're gonna have multiple clouds. The ability to have an analytics exchange, I think the rise of analytics exchange is really going to be a big trend in the next year, and the next ten years, where people now need more than just sharing data; they need to be able to share assets. So, if you and I build an application that is composed of some Google assets, some Looker Google Looker assets, some ThoughtSpot assets, how can I now enable those products to be to be shared? So, it's really important to both provide simplicity with sophistication and meet the customers where they are. Because really, I think you'll come across a situation where a chief data officer comes into an organization and it's a blank slate, right? They're going to come in and they're going to have some machine learning tool set, maybe from this area or the past. And they're going to have to take that talent and that tool set along with their new modernized stack. And so helping them do that, I think, is is probably the most important thing we can do.
2: Yeah, so we definitely agree on the rise of analytic exchanges. I was hoping it would yeah. happen faster than it has been. So Bruno, time flies uh, when, we get, when we get together. I'm going to move to a couple fun things. So first off, you also are the host of your own um, CarCast. CarCast, I, I always get a little nervous when I see these on LinkedIn, hoping yeah. you're safely parked somewhere. I'm not um, driving,
4: yeah, I'm not driving. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so how many episodes of the CarCast now?
4: You know, I think we're uh, well over 115 at this point. And I got to tell you the background story because I think uh, people in your audience will probably relate to it. I was meeting with the chief data officer and he's still talking to me about this complexity issues. Like not only was he just struggling with understanding how do I build my stack, but also he's saying, you know, on a weekly basis, I just get inundated with new vendors Uh, that have new research that I should look at, new software I should try. Just like, you know, what's important? You know, I I, I can't find anyone that's going to give me what are the top five things that happened this week that I probably should take a minute and and pay attention to, send it to my team, read them, what, what have you. And so that meeting was on the Friday, I always remember. And then I thought about it over the weekend. I thought, you know what? I'm reading the same stuff and I could probably help this person. And I was looking for a format that would be different and useful so I just got in my car. I mean, literally, I put my phone on my dashboard and I said, here's what I think are the five things that happened this week. And that was really well received. People reached out to me. Uh, that CDO in particular said you should do this every week. And that was almost two years ago. And so every weekend, that's what I do. I just look at you know what was interesting this week. What the principles around it is that it's never about vendors. So if you're a vendor and listening to that, this is not your opportunity to reach out to me with your marketing pitch. I just will not do that. <laughs> it's about, you know, my interpretation. So, you know, I'm going to be wrong sometimes. Uh, but it's also about the themes, the customers' conversations that I might have. Where Like this past week, we talked about data observability. Uh, the week before, we talked about governance, I think. And so I just, just take five minutes, say, hey, these are the five things that I read. These are the people you should follow because they matter in the community and then I hope that that just creates a conversation and most of the time it does so that's that's really gratifying I'm learning from it myself to be honest and it's a little selfish as well because uh I get people coming back to me and and having to summarize it makes me better because I'm also rereading stuff that I've read and, and try to synthesize it for people it's 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 a little harder than just uh you know sending links
2: Yeah, no, that's a wonderful combination. I learn as much from these discussions as well. We are both so fortunate to have such great customers. Bruno, give us some fun predictions. So you are a sports fan, a soccer fan, and you um, played with the LA Galaxy. I don't think I ever knew that. Yeah.
4: So every year they do this camp where they invite adults uh, to uh, play and, and, uh, you know, practice for three days. And so I just came back from that. I have to tell you, I was very nervous because last time I did it, I couldn't walk for three days after it. Uh, I do play a lot of soccer throughout the week. But when you play with that level of intensity, it's it's a little different on your body. And I'm not uh, 25 anymore. I'm just uh, about to turn 28 and a half. And so, you know, these three years make a big difference. And so, um, so yeah, so if anyone has, um, uh, tips and tricks on how to be a better soccer player, I'll be taking them. I, I will tell you that as a data nerd, I have a bunch of things that I use to measure my quote unquote, uh, performance. I have, um, things that I put on my shoes that tell me, uh, how many touches, how many releases, my running speed, Uh, And so I look at that with the rest of the team uh, throughout the week. And I just got myself for Christmas uh, the actual professional kit now that you could put around your chest and that will now give you positioning on the field. And so um, the problem with this, to be honest, is a little bit of an ecosystem, going back to our conversation earlier, all these tools are kind of separate. Like I wish I could bring all that data into one place and then share it out. But all these vendors are kind of different vendors that I have to rely on. So I can't really...
2: Well, I th- I think we'll get there, though. If you think about the power of the ecosystem, like with Alexa, being able to play your different devices, whether it's, you know, playing from your phone to Spotify to your TV, or we just got the Google Nest thermostats, you'll be pleased to know. So, <laughs> So maybe with these fitness devices we're just getting started. And soon you'll see them in a beautiful ThoughtSpot pinboard with a a Google ML model saying Bruno's going to um, hit his peak performance in that game. (laughs) I hope
4: so. I I can't wait for, for that future. I do think that the future of the interface for data is going to be our voice. It's going to be us rather than You know, us trying to speak machine, the machine is going to speak human. And so I can't wait for that one. It's going to take a few more years than just next year, but we're on the good path to making that happen.
2: Yeah. Bruno, it's been great having you on the Data Chief.
4: Thanks for having me, Cindy. Always great to talk to you. Thanks
0: for listening today. If these conversations sparked your imagination for the year ahead, make sure to check out Cindy's predictions, trends, and resolutions for 2022. Mm -hmm. Available for download at ThoughtSpot.com forward slash resources. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the data chief to learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest or hear more of the show head over to the If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy house. Join her on LinkedIn live the first Thursday of each month for a live version of the data chief, where she'll share best practices and take your questions live. If you haven't already, Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content.
3: The Data Chief is brought to you by our
1: friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. Finding insights in your company's data doesn't have to be complicated. All you need is search. With ThoughtSpot, anyone in your organization can easily answer their own data questions Find facts and
3: make better, faster decisions. Learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights
2: and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.
0: Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or hear more of the show, head over to TheDataChief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy Housen. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content.